In uh, our lesson today, we are uh, in Genesis chapter 15, and uh, we were <clears throat> finishing up chapter 14 last week and just getting into the first half a dozen or so verses of chapter 15, and uh, and I didn't want to try to rush that at all, so we kind of stopped. Uh, we stopped last week in about verse two of chapter 15. And uh, so today we'll pick it up there with uh, verses 2 and 3. And just look at uh, down through about verse 6 is all I'm going to try to do today. And, and that'll probably uh, that'll keep us uh, busy for today. So anyway, so last week we, uh, we were finishing up our, uh, our look there at the end of chapter 14 on the story of Abram's encounter there with the king of Sodom. And, and as I said, then we began to look at verse uh, at the first few verses of 15. So by way of review, what do you remember from our study last week? Okay. Okay. We uh, on the uh, <clears throat> let me make sure I'm wired here uh, on the. Uh, uh, the beginning of, first, of, of chapter 15, he uses a formula which is a prophetic formula. It's a formula that's used over and over and over, uh, particularly in the major and minor prophets, uh, to introduce a prophetic vision or a prophetic word from God. Okay? What else? Okay. 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 The idea that as Abram begins his uh, begins to ask God these difficult questions that are growing out of his struggle of faith, he does so with this with this great sense of reverence for God. So the thing we talked about is it's it's okay to have questions for God. <laughs> it's okay to ask God's questions. It's okay to struggle with faith, but it's not okay to do so irreverently. And the thing that we see with Abram is that he doesn't understand God's promise. He doesn't understand how God's promise can be fulfilled in his life given his circumstances. So he's really puzzled at God's promise. And so as he begins to discuss this with God, as he comes to God, he comes with a sense of, of real reverence. And he refers to him, he calls him uh, Adonai Yahweh or my, uh, uh, my Lord or my God is the idea. The idea of, of just this this recognition that God is his suzerain Lord. God is his master. And so even though he doesn't understand God's promise and he doesn't understand how God's promise could possibly be fulfilled in his circumstances, uh, and he wants some clarification from that, from the Lord, as he approaches the Lord, he does so with just this great reverence and awe and respect and submission to the Lord. Okay? What else? Mm-hmm. Just probably more than I've ever even thought about before. Yeah. That just, what else could you possibly reward me with? Yeah, yeah. He has every possible material thing he could want. But when God says that your reward will be very great, all of that material stuff just kind of is irrelevant to him. He just goes, you know, it's what, what could you possibly give me because I don't have a child? Okay, and so so we see that the real desire of Abram, more than for all this wealth and material things and 
and influence that he now has, in spite of, uh, uh, all of that is, is really, really dims in comparison to his desire just to have a child, just to have an heir that he can pass things on to. Okay? What else? God strengthening Abram when he says, "Do not fear, Abram." You know, there could have been a little bit of backlash and the thought of, you know, defeating these kings and oh no, they could be trying to, you know, yeah. form a rally cry and, yeah. and come back. So, or just strengthening Abram. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a theme we see all the way through Scripture, isn't it? That theme of "Do not fear." I'm your shield. I'm your, you know, go through the Psalms. The Lord is our fortress and our shield and our defender, and He wants us to remember that. That's that's an important aspect of our relationship with God is remembering that that's true about Him. We face all kinds of circumstances in life that would cause us to fear, and uh, and God just keeps telling us, "Don't fear. I am your shield. I am your fortress. I am your protector. I am your defender." Okay. Anything else? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We talked about the fact that that as human beings created in the likeness of God, God has endued us and has given to us certain rights. And we have those rights. We recognize those rights. And they're not simply given to us in the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, but they're given to us by God. And, uh, and they are, uh, some of them are particularly uh, are expressed and articulated in Scripture. They are rights that we have. But just because we have a right doesn't mean we always have to assert that right. And as we saw last week, Abraham elects and under the circumstances in which he, he uh, finds himself there with the king of Sodom, he elects to forego a right that he has for the greater glory of God. He's concerned about God's glory uh, in, this, in this case, and he believes that he, if he exercises his right, the possibility is that God would not receive the glory uh, that, that he's really due. And so he elects not to... Re, not to uh, to exercise the right that he has. And we saw how Paul does that too in the New Testament. On, there are some uh, incidences in the New Testament where Paul very aggressively asserts his rights and demands that he be treated the way he should rightfully be treated. But there are other times where Paul, for the greater glory of God, chooses to, surpass, chooses to, to bypass uh, uh, the assertion of his rights. Okay? Yeah, that, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, this is the second time he's done that because he, yeah, he gave Lot the he gave Lot kind of the pick of the place, and uh, of course I think Lot picked a place Abram probably wouldn't have picked anyway. But he gave the he gave that right away to to Lot. So uh, and then again, of course, he does to the king of Sodom. So yeah, it is the second time. So good. What's the difference between these that he turned down and stuff that he took from the king of Egypt? You know, that's an interesting question. I kind of thought about it. Do you have any thought? Not really. I mean, I was sitting there thinking there. I've had times in my life where you, or I've struggled with this, and you, know, you don't want uh, your, you know, you kind of look at what the third person out there see is my blessings thinking and came from that and that and mm-hmm. that and not from God. Mm-hmm. Because you did that, you got blessed. Mm-hmm. You got in with this group of people, you got blessed rather than God. Mm-hmm. And yet you think, you know, 
And sometimes you do that with choosing clients. Or a client chooses you and says, well, I don't know if I want to represent that person yeah, or, yeah. or not. Yeah. It may be lucrative, but it might not be, might take me away. I don't want to go. But it's a hard call. And I was looking at that and said, why wouldn't he? You know, he, he messed up in Egypt, and yet he, he came out of it and he did yeah. all this stuff. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah, that is a good question, and I, you know, I don't totally know the answer to it, Mike. Uh, but uh, I think we have to remember that in the situation that he's in in Egypt, that when he receives that stuff, it's at the beginning of the scenario rather than at the end. In other words, he re- he receives it while he's still being deceptive. So it's per- perhaps he received that stuff when he shouldn't have received it. <clears throat> and and I was thinking. As I was doing some of my study for this uh, for this study today, I was looking forward at some things that we're going to be looking at down the road, and uh, and it is interesting. We'll talk about this when we get to it in the story in the story that unfolds in chapter 16 uh, with uh, Sarah and uh, Hagar. That it's really interesting. It points out that Hagar is an Egyptian maid. <laughs> so in other words. This is one Hagar is one of the one of the uh, one of the things that he received uh, from Pharaoh when he pulled this off. So I'm not sure that those things that he got there under those circumstances. I'm not sure he was, in New Testament terms, we would say I'm not sure he was walking in the spirit <laughs> when he received that gift from from Pharaoh. So I don't know. I thought about this. Uh, there was, I guess, in today's context, it's some people. Where do you get your wealth? And there are a lot of Christians out there that are wealthy, and yet. You get to know them, and somebody yeah. else, you know where they got it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know Abraham was able to stand back and realize, okay, what are people going to say? Yeah. I mean, I just heard something a few weeks ago. You know, a prominent Oklahoma City guy that is a prominent Christian too, and yet scuttlebutt. Yeah, but a lot of people don't respect him because of this and this yeah. and this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't don't want to have it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think that's the admirable thing about Abram. I'm not sure he did the right thing in Egypt. In fact, I'm pretty sure he didn't do the right thing in Egypt. But it appears that by this point, he's gotten his priorities straight. And I think, yeah, I think those are good, good thoughts. Okay. Well, let's pick it up in chapter 15 and verse one, and let's read down through these first six verses. And as I mentioned, we've already talked about them some, uh, and so we'll just go on and explore them further. Uh, He says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have no offspring, uh, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but you, but one will come forth from you from your own body, and he shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay? As we mentioned last week, uh, this whole vision that Abram receives here in chapter 15, and it goes on beyond verse 6 here all the way through the end of the chapter, but this whole vision is really a watershed event 
in the life of Abraham, and it's a watershed event in the whole unfolding of the redemptive story. Okay, So it really is a crucial passage, and as I mentioned last week, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, takes the entire fourth chapter of Romans to explain and exposit on verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15. Okay, So this is a very central, a very important uh, uh, passage for us to understand, and that's why one of the reasons I don't want to, to hurry through it. Okay, But last week we just looked at the fact that God came to him by vision and, and, uh, and, and spoke to him and made this promise to him that he would receive a great reward. And then Abram responds as he does there in verse 2 and 3 and, and questions the Lord as to what kind of a reward the Lord has in mind given his circumstances. Okay. One of the things that I was thinking about as we were, as I was reflecting on this passage this week and and, and I think some, I think it's maybe a question we, we don't ask as often as we ought to ask. We think about, we think about Abram, and we know how long he, we know how long he waited for this promise to be fulfilled. He received the promise, the initial promise he received when he was uh, 75 years of age, and and the promise began to really be fulfilled where he could actually see it being fulfilled. Uh, when he was 100 years of age. So, so he has to wait 25 years before he sees any tangible evidence of the promise being fulfilled. At this point in the story, I, th- I think I misspoke last week when I said that he may have been approaching uh, in, in his 90s or been in his 90s at this point. Actually, we know that, uh, that at this point in the story, he's probably about 85. So this is about 10 years after he's received the promise that he received in Haran. This is about 10 years later. He received the first promise in Haran when he was 75. So, so we are now uh, at about the age of 85. That becomes clear when we get into chapter 16. So he's about the age of 85. It's been about 10 years. It's going to be another 15. Okay? And, and we're all familiar with this. We know about how long Abraham waited. And we think about, man, having to wait that long and all that sort of thing. But one question I don't know if we think about very often is, why did he have to wait so long? Did you ever think about that? Why did God wait so long? Why did God give him a promise when he was 75, when God knew full well he wasn't going to fulfill the promise for 25 years? Why, why did God find it necessary to make Abram wait so long to see any tangible evidence of the fulfillment of the promise? <clears throat> and, and I think there are a couple explanations for that, and I think both, I think both explanations apply. Uh, back when we were uh, studying Luke here a year or two ago, whenever it was, uh, <clears throat> at one point we were talking about God answering prayer and... and, and uh, how do we, you know, what do we think about God answering prayer when he, when he seems to take so long to answer prayer at times? And, and one of the things we discussed at that point was that oftentimes when we're praying for things, we're asking for God to do things in our lives. Uh, and, and even if we're relatively confident that, that the prayer is in accordance with God's will and that, that there's no reason why we shouldn't expect Him to answer it and we're really believing Him to answer it, oftentimes it takes a considerable time before He answers that prayer. Some of you may never have had that experience, <laughs> but it oftentimes takes a long time. And, and one of the reasons that we reflected on when we were in Luke that, that it takes a long time is because, because God's doing more than just dealing in our lives. <laughs> He's dealing in a lot of other lives too. And so 
when God is moving to answer our prayers, oftentimes there are many other circumstances and people involved in the answering of our prayer. And God has to providentially orchestrate affairs to answer our prayers in such a way that all these other timing issues are taken into consideration and the, the uh, uh, free will, the, the, the free agency of man is not violated, okay? So he can't violate man's free agency. So oftentimes God is doing a lot of other things and he actually is answering our prayers, but we don't see it for a long period of time because, because, because God is doing, answering our prayer in other places and other ways and coordinating things and, and providentially working till He finally can provide the tangible answer that we need to see. Okay? So timing is an issue. That's one of the reasons. And I assume we don't know what timing issues are at stake here in this whole story of Abraham. But I assume that, that God was working and God had a plan. He had a time. He had, he was, you know, he's had more than Abram to deal with, okay? He had the whole redemptive story to deal with. And so that presumably is one of the factors that's going on. But I think there's some, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, don't you think though that, I mean, if he wanted to orchestrate it all and do it all at once, he could make it work that He could, mm-hmm. yeah. I think really he does it for us because we look at Abraham and think, wow, he has a way. 25 years. That's impressive to us. It means nothing to him. But really what he's saying is, look, in your condition as you are just men, I can drag this out this long under under insurmountable odds and I can still make it work. Mm-hmm. And you have no idea how mm-hmm. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And this really touches on my second reason, which is, which is that as this 25 years is going on, Abram is thinking about something. Okay? Now, I'm not speculating here because Paul tells us specifically in Romans chapter 4 what Abram is thinking about while this is going on. Do you remember what Paul says he's thinking about? What is Abram contemplating in this 25 years? Yeah, he's dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. While I'm thinking about it, uh, let's flip over to Romans chapter 4 because we're going to keep referring to it off and on uh, through today's lesson. And, and just look at several verses uh, in Romans chapter 4 because I'll keep referring to them and I want you to have them fresh in your mind. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back first into actually Romans chapter 3. And, uh, and, and this is where Abram is... Is, is establishing his, excuse me, Paul is establishing his argument that salvation is by faith and not by works. Okay? And as you know, of course, he uses Abram as an example. But back in verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now drop down to verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Uh, then down in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, What shall we then say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? And he begins to refer to this incident in chapter 15 of Genesis. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15:6. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Okay, uh, then let's drop down to verse 16. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated in his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Okay. Well, as I said last week, we're studying Genesis. We're not studying Romans. <clears throat> so I don't intend to do an exposition of Romans chapter 14 here. But or Romans chapter 4 here. But obviously, this chapter in, in Romans sheds a lot of light on Abram and what's going on in Abram's life at this point. Okay? And so when we contemplate this question of why was God waiting, one of the reasons we discover, which has already been suggested here, one of the reasons we discover that, that it was necessary for Abram to wait for so long is because this just isn't, isn't just about Abram, but it's about us as well. And that's explicitly what Paul says there towards the end of chapter 4 when he says, this wasn't written just for Abraham. In other words, this wasn't written just about Abraham. It's written about us as well, okay, for our sakes as well. And, and so the point is, is, that there's, is that one of the things that's going on in Abraham's life that he has no awareness of is that God is doing something in his life 
that will pertain to and relate to people who are going to live thousands of years later. And that, and, and that it's absolutely crucial in Abram's life that he wait as long as he waits so that certain things will happen so that when you and I look back on the life of Abram, we will learn a lesson and we will discover things that are absolutely essential for our understanding of what it means to be saved and how we can be saved. Okay. So, so what's going on here with Abram is not only is God orchestrating events and doing all sorts of things, which, you know, like we said, you know, he could have done them instantaneously if he chose, but he chooses not to work that way. But he's, he's organizing, coordinating, providentially working circumstances. He's doing all that. But more importantly, what he's doing is he's accomplishing, he's bringing Abram to a certain point in his life to which every one of us has to be brought if we are ever going to stand in a right relationship with God. So Abram is going on and on, and he's getting older and older and older in his life. And as he's getting older, he's, as Paul says, contemplating his own body as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay, Which means the longer Abram lives the longer he becomes aware of his own what? Mortality or his, in reference to bearing children, his what? His inability, right? I can't do this, okay? So, now, you know, giving Abram the benefit of the doubt, I'm relatively confident that Abram probably knew most of his life that, Children are a gift from the Lord, as the psalmist says, right? Okay? The psalmist tells us that the children are a gift from the Lord. So I'm sure Abram theologically knew that. But it seems from the way the narrative is written in Genesis and from the way that Paul interprets it in Romans chapter 4, that this is a signature event in the life of Abram. This is a turning point, okay? And... Without wanting to belabor or overstate the case here, Paul in chapter 4 is making a chronological argument. The chronological argument that Paul is making in chapter 4 is that Abram was declared righteous by God before circumcision, before the law, in other words. Okay, right? Is that not his argument? And so to Paul, the timing of an event in Genesis 15 is crucial. Okay. So what I'm trying to suggest here is that is that chronologically speaking something significant happens in Genesis 15 that hasn't happened before that. And it is interesting that even though Hebrews talks about Abram's faith for example when he left Haran that he went out by faith etc cetera, etc. Cetera, in in the story in Genesis, as we've been studying the life of Abram since the end of chapter 12, or, or since chapter 12, since, as we've been looking at his life, this is the first mention of Abram's faith in Genesis. Okay. That's not to say that he didn't trust God before, that he didn't have faith before, but this is the first time that Genesis points out his faith. And it is at this point, this first time when Genesis points out his faith, that God says that he attributed it to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay. 
So I want to suggest something here, and I wouldn't want to be dogmatic on it, and, uh, and I hope you don't take me to the carpet on it, but I think this is the point at which Abram is converting. I think it is at this point that Abram enters into a right relationship with God. Am I suggesting that he didn't believe God before? No, I, believe, I think he did believe God before. But I think it's at this point that his faith reaches that point in his own experience where he so fully recognizes his own inability to fulfill the promise that he casts himself completely on the ability and the provision and the promise of God. So much so that it is at this point that God reckons him as righteous. And it's interesting that it's only at this point then that God finally does enter into an unconditional covenant with Abram. Okay? Which we'll see as we go on later in the chapter in the context of this whole vision. He let, God enters into this covenant with Abram. He only does it at this point. Okay. So what I'm suggesting to you is that Abram's been on a journey of faith. Okay. That he has been learning and he's been operating. He's been going, okay, I, you know, God said do this and so I'm going to trust him and I'm going to move forward. But there's something significant that happens here. And, and, and Paul puts so much emphasis on what happens at this particular juncture in the life of Abram. And the particular time that it happened that it seems significant to me that or, or it seems like it's, it's uh, apparently significant that, that something dramatic happened here. A watershed event happened in the life of Abram, and at this point, he is declared righteous by God. Okay. Now, the question is, what happened? Well, he's been going through this process of contemplating the deadness of his own body. And he'll go on contemplating that even after this because in Romans chapter 4, he's contemplating it all the way up till, uh, until uh, Isaac is born. But he's contemplating the deadness of his own body. And it is absolutely necessary for Abram that he acknowledge and recognize the deadness of his own body and that this gift is from the Lord. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, I assume, giving Abram the benefit of the doubt, that he's always believed that children were a gift from the Lord. I mean, we all believe that, right? But Abram has a crisis here. Children are a gift from the Lord. But he looks around him and what does he see? Everybody's having babies but Abram. Right. Everybody's having them. You know, the other people in his house, when we read a passage referred to children born in his own house. What did it do to Abram every time one of his servants had a child? In your face, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, what did it do when those wicked, evil people in Sodom were reproducing like rabbits? What did it do to the faith of Abram? Every time he looked around him and he believes that children are a gift from the Lord. And everybody's out there having babies but him. Or their women are. <laughs> Let's be clear here. Everybody's out there having babies, having children, having heirs but him. And over a period of years, that begins to weigh upon Abram. And he comes to a point where he realizes, I cannot do this. 
I think probably, I mean, just, I had five kids. Uh, most of you here have had children. Many of you here have had children. You know? uh, they came pretty easy for us. <laughs> for me. <laughs> I, I mean, we were virile, we were young, you know, and we were just, you know, every two years we were having a new child, you know, for ten years. It just, you know. Now, I believe that children are a gift from the Lord. But, you know, I was a virile young guy and my wife was fertile and, you know, you know we just had children. And it's just, you know, it was, it's just natural to think I had something to do with it. Oh, I know that they're a gift from the Lord and I recognize that and oftentimes thank God for this gift that He's given to me, but I really think I had something to do with it. But God makes Abram wait a hundred years till Abram knows absolutely beyond a shadow of doubt that neither he nor Sarah had anything to do with this. That this is absolutely a miraculous event by the power of God. Yeah? I think another message that God sent to Abram is not only is your body dead, it's going to be dead for a long time further. Yeah. Because I don't need your mind yeah. to give you a child. It's mm-hmm. just the same thing when they said to Christ, if you'd have come to Lazarus, if you'd have been here you know, three days ago, you could have fixed all this. And his message was, I don't have to be here three yeah. days ago. Yeah. Yeah. I can fix it all from yeah. any point in time. Yeah. Abram, Abram has the same timeline you gave us on Kim's first child. Uh-huh. hundred years old. Uh-huh. And then Sarah... Right. So Abraham still maybe has a thread to hang on. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, his ancestors, they had children when they were old. Nobody around him now is having children at that age. But the guys up there had, were past 35 when yeah. they had their kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the only two threads he might have to hang on to. Yeah, yeah. Cut that thread, I think. That's exactly what he's doing. He's cutting that thread. Has he ever done that in your life? Has he ever driven you beyond the point? To where you were, as Paul says, hoping against hope. Yes, Rick. It's, uh, I, as I mentioned to you before, I thought a lot about this whole thing. The fact of the matter is, Psalm 104 30 says we have absolutely nothing to do with the creation of children because it says when you send your spirit, they are created. Yeah. And he calls it he calls it a gift and a reward. Which, as a sidelight, throw this in for free, <laughs> makes us understand how absolutely reprehensible it is, reprehensible it is, when one of our leading politicians talks about his daughters being punished with a baby. It's so foreign to God's value system. Even illegitimate children are not a punishment. They're not God's retribution for immorality. Even illegitimate children are a gift from the Lord and are, and are brought about by the Spirit of God. Well, at any rate, so, so it is absolutely imperative that Abram reach this point of 
of complete recognition that he has nothing to do with it. Now, why is that so important for Abram? It wasn't important for me. God didn't make me wait till I was 100 years old to have five kids. So, God didn't think it was all that important for me that I'd be absolutely convinced it was nothing to do with me. But with Abram, He did. Why did He make Abram wait? He didn't make anybody else wait. And I'm sure Abram's asking the same question. He's going, God, why are You making me wait? You're not making anybody else wait. Why are You making me wait? Well, Abram didn't know why he was making him wait, but you and I do know why he was making him wait. Because these things were written, Paul says, not just for Abram's sake, but for our sake as well. In other words, there's something in Abram's having to wait the way he waited and come to the realization that he finally experientially came to. He theologically knew it that children were a gift from the Lord, but he had to come to an experiential knowledge that children were a gift from the Lord. And that had to happen in his life so that we would understand that when God attributes righteousness, it is on the basis of faith and not on the basis of human effort. Okay. So, so Abram responds to the Lord, and I want you to notice what he says. He says there in verse 2, he says, he says, what are you going to give to me since I am childless? Right? And, and the heir of my house is Eliezer. Okay? But then you notice verse 3. In verse 3 he says, since you, have, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And what it sounds like is Abram's just repeating himself, right? He said, Lord, what reward are you going to give me since I'm childless? Lord, I'm childless. But that's not what's happening there. What's the difference between verse 2 and verse 3? What's different in what Abram is saying about his childlessness in between verse 2 and verse 3? One place he says, I'm going on childless. The first is simply a statement of fact. I am childless. What are you going to give me? I'm childless. But in the second statement, he goes a step further. And he says, God, I'm childless because of you. See, this is why I think that Abram has really come to grips with the, the issue that, that children are from the Lord and it's only from God. And he recognizes not only his childlessness, but he is careful to state, and, and Moses says our narrator is careful to point it out to us that Abram understands that God is the reason he doesn't have children. So, so Abram is coming progressively in his life to this position of absolute, complete helplessness. And it's only when Abram comes to this point of complete helplessness that the promise of God can resonate the way it then resonates in his heart. So then God comes to him again and says, No, this guy is not going to be your heir. But one from your own body, he will be your heir. 
And what see, what Abram's been doing all along, he's been, uh, as Thomas suggested, probably clinging to this idea, well, you know, some of my ancestors, they had kids when they were pretty old. But now it's getting beyond that point, okay? So, so that thread of hope is gone, but there's another possibility. And that possibility is this whole cultural thing. Well, you know, my, my inheritance will pass on to somebody born in my house. Okay. So there's the cultural answer. But it's quite obvious that Abram finds the cultural answer just terribly unsatisfying. Because <laughs> he says, what are you going to give me, God, since you know, all, this inherit, all, this, all this reward you're going to give me is just going to be passed on to somebody that lives in my house, was born in my house. It's not going on to my heirs. That's a wholly unsatisfactory solution to him. But there is still that human solution. And so when God comes and answers his prayer, answers his, his, his question with this promise that he gives, God begins it by cutting the last thread, which is the, the thread of some kind of cultural or human solution to the problem. He says, it will not be Eliezer. It will not be somebody born in your house. It is going to be somebody born from your body. He will be your heir. And then God takes him outside and explains to him the absolute magnitude or scale of the promise. When he takes him outside, and I assume it was probably a cloudless Canaanite night, and he takes him out there and he looks up there, and it's probably a moonless night and the stars are just out there like they are when you're out in a place like that. And, and he just looks up and God says, count them if you can. Now, I... I don't know if Abram counted them, tried to count them or not, but, but you know, there might have been a time sometime in the next 15 years after this that Abram might have thought, okay, I'm going to try this, see if I can do this. Start over here on the horizon and starts counting. Have you ever tried to count stars? Have you ever done that? You know, as a kid, I tried it a few times, you know. Doesn't work, does it? You get totally lost, okay? And that is the illustration that God uses of the magnitude of what He's going to do. It's absolutely beyond comprehension to this guy, Abram, who has no child, who's as good as dead. And and he's contemplating that his old body is as good as dead and the deadness of his wife's womb. And he's contemplating that. And God says, I'm going to give give you an heir. It's going to be from your own body. And the the ultimate result is going to be you're going to have descendants as innumerable as the stars of the sky. You know, uh, excuse me. Go ahead. I, I'm just a guest, but uh, you know, there. In the, I've got an old Bible. You know, I got a King James Bible, mm-hmm. and uh, in the very first verse, it just says, um, "It says, Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward.' Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say I'm going to give you a great reward. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. am thy reward. Mm-hmm. And I think you're making the point that if he's seeing, you know, the, I mean, he, he then he goes back to what God had already said. You said you're going to give me a bunch of children before. Uh-huh. You said that yeah. already. Yeah. You know, back in a couple chapters ago. Yeah. And he hadn't had any children between those couple chapters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, I'm still going child. Mm-hmm. And then he blames God. Mm-hmm. You haven't given me any mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. And then God says, then I, I'm getting out of that, that what he does is, he says, no, this mess in your house isn't going to be your heir. And I'm going to show you something. He says, come out here and look at these stars. You can count them if you can. 
but I'm the one who made the promise. Mm -hmm. See? Mm -hmm. And the end of it is, is what I think is that Ab Abram, you know, he sees who God is. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. There's the translations translate it different there in verse six, uh, but in some translations uh, in uh, in the New American, it translates as he believed in the Lord. Some just say he believed the Lord. Okay, and and there's uh, uh, it's not exactly sure how it should be translated there, but but it seems like the sense of it is is like what you're saying there is that that he believed in God. It was is that it's not just simply what God said, but he saw God's character. He saw God's person. He saw who who God was. And because he saw who God's, God was and saw God's nature and understood God's nature, that he knew that the promise was sure. He knew it was absolute. Okay. Well, what Paul then tells us is going on with Abram here is that Abram is declared righteous because of his faith. Now, we, we really need to understand this because this really goes to the core of our, of our right relationship with God. It goes to the issue of our salvation. Okay. Is the point that Paul makes is that man is saved by faith. And we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? And what is faith? You see, because they're really... There are really kind of two different kinds of faith, and I think the book of James makes this clear. There are two different kinds of faith. And there is a faith which sees itself as the object. And there is faith which sees God as the object. And there's a world of difference. Okay, the faith which sees itself as an object is the kind of faith that's, the, the kind of faith that's talked about when people talk about uh, the healing power of faith. Well, faith doesn't have any healing power. Well, there is such a thing as the power of positive thinking. But, you know, that's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible isn't talking about the power of positive thinking. So there's the faith which says, because I have faith. And the, the object of the faith is the faith itself. It's kind of a mad circle, isn't it? But then there's the faith that has God as its object. And this is what happens in the life of Abram. 
You know, I, I really kind of think that what's been going on all along is Abram's been thinking, I'm a pretty good guy and I'm obeying God and, I'm, you know, and he promised me these things and so I'll go do these things. But I think at this point he comes to an awareness, as we said, of the, of the, of the great magnitude and greatness of God and of his own complete, total inability. And so we discover, and this is the thing that, that Paul points out to us as emphatically as he possibly can, that faith is categorically different from works. Okay? And I think oftentimes we fall, in the mis- fall into a mistake, although we often say, well, you know, we're saved by faith and not by works. I think oftentimes we've, we fall into the mistake of thinking, really, that there's kind of a hierarchy of works, you know, and down here is putting a dime in the offering plate and up here maybe, you know, sacrificing your life for somebody. You know, there's a hierarchy of good works. And at the very top, at the very top of the list is faith. And none of these other things will work for salvation, but this one will. That all the other works below faith, they, they don't count for salvation, but faith will work for salvation. And it's a work. It's a meritorious work. That's how we think sometimes. And Paul says emphatically in Romans, no. He says it is of faith in order that it might not be of works. And he separates them. And he puts works over here and he puts faith over here in a category all by itself. Faith is not a meritorious work. God doesn't save me because... I did something good. I believed him and trusted him. And that's good. And so God saved me because I did a good thing. No. My faith has no intrinsic merit. When I say to God, God, I am helpless. I am completely destitute of any ability to be pleasing to you or deserving of your favor. I have absolutely nothing to give you. But you have promised me your forgiveness. Thank you for it. Then, God looks at that faith and He says, okay, in my ledger book, I'm going to count that as righteousness. Now notice, says he counts it as righteousness. He doesn't, he doesn't say, I count it as a righteous act. So when God attributes righteousness on the basis of faith, he is attributing a status, not an act. You got that? There's a difference. He's not saying, when I believe God, he's not saying, well, there, Rick did a good thing. He's saying, Rick is in the status. Rick has the status of holiness and righteousness and perfection. It's a complete state. It's not just one act. I am, in the eyes of God, by His remarkable bookkeeping system, I am completely perfect and holy and righteous. Why? Because I live a perfect, holy, and righteous life? No. And in fact, Paul, to make his point that faith is absolutely categorically different than works, cites the psalmist there in the first part of chapter 4. And he goes back and he cites the psalmist and he says what? He says, 
Using the psalmist as an example, using the psalmist argument as an example, he says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And he uses that passage in, in, in Psalm 32. He uses that passage to, to argue his point. It's one of the two, two foundations for his argument that faith is exclusive of works and works is exclusive of faith. And his point is, the guy in Psalms is blessed when his only qualifying thing is he's a sinner. The guy in Psalms, he, he doesn't attribute any good deeds to him. The only thing that stands out about the guy in Psalms is that he's forgiven. <laughs> so the only thing we know about the guy in the first part of Psalm 32 is that he was a sinner. And the thing that qualified him was that he was blessed of God by faith. Okay? So Paul's argument then is, there's absolutely nothing that I do. So, so he uses Abram as the example, and that's his prime example. He uses Abram as an example as a guy who had, had now come to the realization of his complete inability and inadequacy to stand in a right relationship with God. He, he, that Abram came to this point where he realized there was nothing that he could do to effect this promise. Nothing. And when he came to that point that he realized that there was nothing that he could do to effect the promise of God, then God comes and says again for the fourth time, gives him the promise again. And it says, Abram believed God. And if you can just put yourself there in Abram's shoes for a moment, that here he is, he's finally getting to this point where he's realizing... You know, as we've said before, this is over with, folks. This isn't going to happen. I'm a cul-de-sac. I'm a genealogical cul-de-sac. This is the end of the line, and it cannot happen. And then God comes and says to him, it is going to happen, and it's going to happen on a scale that's incomprehensible and innumerable, and Abram's heart just responds with faith. And Paul describes that event. He says, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. And he went on from that point for the next 15 years contemplating the deadness of his body. So it's not like he just did it once. But from that point on, Abram keeps thinking, my body is dead, but I've got a promise. Now that's that, folks, is salvation. Salvation is knowing that I am dead. I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer. No good deed can I do. I cannot, I cannot do anything that would merit the favor of God. I can't even believe to merit the favor of God. I have nothing but the promise of God that He will forgive my sins and that His Son rose from the dead because of my justification. That's Paul's argument. And that is the faith that saves. Not the faith that says, God saves me because I believe. But the faith that says, God saves me because God saves. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on uh, into the following verses because the story just keeps going and he enters into this covenant and all that sort of thing. So, great.